Hey guys, if you want updates on our latest episodes, then be sure to subscribe to the Film Colossus podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, if you'd like to support the show and hear episodes ad-free, then subscribe to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash filmcolossus. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My name is Chris Lambert. And my name is Travis Bean. And on today's episode, we celebrate Dune. No, not that Dune. We're talking about that old polarizing one that David Lynch directed. We discuss everything that's keeping 1984's Dune from achieving Frank Herbert's ultimate intent with the novel, as well as all of the idiosyncrasies that allow Lynch's existential tale about the self to shine in enigmatic, bizarrely beautiful ways. We're about to record a podcast, and I have to think of an intro. An intro. I wonder what Travis is thinking. I wonder if the audiences will like my intro. I guess what I'm... Audiences. (laughs) Audiences implies more than one person is listening to this podcast, and I don't know if that's true. Um, (laughs) It's just my mom out there. Hey, mom. Um, Does Virginia Madsen whisper her little opening monologue in the movie? No. No. Is that the implication? (laughs) No, no, it's just people have the little like. Oh yeah, okay. They whisper. They whisper throughout. Yeah, we get we get everybody's internal monologues. Yeah, just randomly and explicitly. <laughs> I don't want to get into talking about the movie too much yet. Um, Explicably, I. But this whole that whole motif of people hearing people's thoughts is a like sort of unbearable at points. Like when Patch or when uh, Max von Sydow was like, "I like this dude." Against all better judgment, I like this dude. There's like really dumb shit like that, yeah. but it's part of why I love this movie is that like it is so ridiculous, <laughs> and like it almost becomes part of an aesthetic choice, like of how cheesy it, it is. I don't know. There's just something about it that I think both doesn't work and shouldn't happen, and does work, and I'm happy that it's happening. <laughs> I mean, it feels very much like David Lynch is like, well, books have internal monologue. I'm going to put an internal monologue. <laughs> well, there is a reason behind why we hear all that, but we can get into that as we go. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so David Lynch is doing you, uh, yeah. whatchamacallit, Pick you've, this. how many times, what's your background with this movie? Um, so I am an avid David Lynch fan. Um, I would say Mahal and Drive is one of those movies that kind of solidified my eternal relationship with movies, how important they are to me. So that movie is kind of like the sun and all the other movies he made are revolving around them. Like even the ones I don't like, I have some sort of kinship with and understand on a level that I think most people, not that most people don't, that sounds pretentious, but then your average person who thinks Lynch is weird and doesn't get his movies would, um, so I've always really loved David Lynch. I love Twin Peaks. A uh, huge fan of Eraserhead. Even Endolin Empire, Chris's greatest enemy in cinema. <laughs> um, I I've just I love all of his movies. And but I will say, 
Dune is the one I didn't see for the longest time. And it wasn't until I think I believe it would have been 2018, 2019. I remember it was I was in my new um, apartment in Chicago when I watched this for the first time. And I was in the midst of I, I thought I was going to commit to this. And I, I still haven't. I, obviously, I haven't done it and I haven't really even come close to doing it. But I still keep thinking about doing this is writing this big retrospective on Lynch's career. Um, like going through each movie and showing the connections and showing how you can properly like watch his movies and get the most out of them. Uh, so I decided to watch Dune and I think I watched Dune. There are several versions of Dune. Um, there's obviously the theatrical cut, which we're talking about on the show today. Um, but there's the mini, there's like the TV cut of it. That was 180 minutes long. And David Lynch put, um, I forget the name, but it said directed by like Alan Smithy. I forget the name. It's something like that. And it's like a, a name directors use when they want to detach themselves from the movie and say like, I had no part in this. <laughs> um, I watched that version for the first time and that's publicly regarded even by fans of Dune as like a pretty bad version of it. Like even Lynch, you saw the dude we saw and David Lynch put his name on that. He wouldn't put his name on this movie. So like it must've been pretty bad, whatever cut they did. Um, I saw that early on and I had a, I, I was not, I didn't have the proper TV setup. I will say like I was in like a big apartment and not a big apartment. I, I didn't have a lot of money to be buying a big apartment in Chicago, but like the room I was in was pretty spacious and I was kind of far away from the TV and not good sound. Um, I didn't really watch it for the first time in my opinion until I saw the theatrical cut uh arrows 4k transfer of the theatrical cut and um <laughs> uh got debilitatingly high while watching it uh, <laughs> like the kind of oh. high where you sink into the couch and you're like oh i'm going down and i'm not getting back up um the kind of high that t- and usually when it happens for me is more accidental like i don't want to be that high but when it starts yeah. happening i'm just like all right fall into the couch like here we go um so i watched the movie that way and i found it very transcendent and the kind of way <laughs> being that high can do. Um, I it, it's the kind of movie that um, it, it's so atypical from what we expect from it. Like I think that's a big reason why people love the new Dune a lot is like it's discernible. <laughs> like that's a big part of it. Like being able to understand what the fuck's happening. Um, but I felt in that state, I kind of did understand the movie at least on a thematic and like philosophical level. Like I saw what it was doing. I saw the visuals. I saw how they connected. I understood the aesthetic. Um, even if some of the choices are ridiculous and obviously done by the studio, like I can see the Lynchness in it cause I know Lynch so well. So I, yeah. I, I had a profound connection with the movie at that point. And then since have seen it twice, just regular, not being super duper high, um, including this morning when I watched it and, yeah, I still kind of had the same reaction to it where, like, I recognize its flaws. Like, I know what's wrong with it. I get why it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I see it, I get it, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, uh, as I was watching, I just kept thinking, this is perhaps one of the most Travis movies I've ever seen. Like, maybe perhaps one of the most Travis movies <laughs> to ever be made. <laughs> you were correct. Uh, which was <laughs> I couldn't get over that. I was just like, that's a Travis that's 
that's gonna make travis laugh that's gonna make travis laugh i, I uh <laughs> yeah I, I agree there, there are movies i love that like everyone seems to love like a hole and drive or enter the void or something like that but then like this is in the category of showgirls you know where it's yeah this is a crime against humanity that someone made this and i'm like it's kind of good though i mean showgirls <laughs> i think is actually good yeah of course of course you do well that's this... how i feel about dune i watch it and i'm like it's actually pretty good uh, okay, so I've never, I've, I'm like not a huge David Lynch fan in general. I've slowly been catching up on his works. I really like Mulholland Drive, but I've only ever seen Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire, and now Dune. So, oh wow, I've only okay. seen three of his films. <clears throat> well, you can't. Well, okay, so you you've only liked one of his three films then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's um, not a great track record. No, it's seeming like there might be a disconnect with me and David although Lynch, but you watch two of his movies that kind of everyone agrees aren't his best. Yeah, that's true too. I've watched I don't know what's it's considered his second best movie. Uh, most people would probably say Blue Velvet. I would say I would actually just say Eraserhead. My other pick would okay. be Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, but I think that only pays off once you've watched the show. Okay, okay. Well, so I don't have. I only know late stage Lynch when it seems like he was maybe at his most indulgent. Oh, for sure. Uh, so it was very jarring to see David Lynch do a movie like this, which yeah, is yeah. a lot more. I mean, it's very David Lynchy, I guess, in a lot of ways. But the shot selection and the camera movements and the actual vibe of the film, uh, the filmmaking aspect of it felt <laughs> so uh antithetical to what i associate with lynch that mm-hmm. i just imagined him like stewing in the director's chair the entire time or like he lost a bet owed somebody money or needed money that there was just All something that theories. happened that got him to make this movie as cut and dry as it kind of is i mean it's not like it's boring or lacking vitality or anything right but it's just so far removed from the style of filmmaking i associate with lynch and so much more buttoned up. Yeah. That, uh, I don't know if early Lynch was all like that. Very like buttoned up and he finally like undid his tie and let loose. But I was I was really uh, I was laughing at that a lot of the time, too. Yeah. Just like, oh, it must have killed him to film that shot. Just so basic. Right. Like that. <laughs> I know what you mean. Um, a, a big part of why Dune is a failure in quotes. And I. I kind of agree with this is that it is just the studio's fingerprints are all over it and when david lynch signed up for dune you know it came after he did Eraserhead in 1978 i'm always blown away by how early that film was it's just such a bizarre movie it feels modern and in a lot of ways and how like weirdly artistic it is but it's such an old movie um he made that and that was made with like, you know, bare bones crew. Like he only worked with 10 people the whole time that that includes actors and crew and meticulously crafted all of the sound himself, did all the sets, um, spent six years making it. And, you know, it, and then it became this thing that got him Hollywood jobs. He got the direct to elephant man and then he rolls in the dune. And those are two movies suddenly were like, he's dealing with a lot of people and dealing with very high-end equipment and has a giant budget like Dune had. And I, it, it, he 
makes the movie I think he wants with the Elephant Man. Like it is a very standard biopic in a lot of ways, but it's also super artsy and weird. Like a lot of glitch stuff is like sometimes you're watching it and you're like, is this a dream? Um, but Dune was, it was where he finally lost final cut, which he didn't even realize was something that could happen. And he didn't realize was happening when he signed up to do this movie because uh, of the way it was worded in his contract. I, I, I think that's the story. Um, but, but David Lynch slowly found out that he didn't have final cut over this movie, that not everything was going to make it on the screen the way he wanted. There were seven versions of the draft because, the, you know, the financers and producers kept asking for this or that. And every and a huge part of this movie was like it was completely mismarketed, like it was marketed to like little kids, you know, not like 12 year olds, but like kids as like a family friendly <laughs> movie, like as oh, an no. outer space movie. Just everything about the movie was kind of a failure on the studio's part and like trying to make something like trying to apply to the lowest common denominator, you know? Yeah. They wanted to star Wars. Yeah. They just wanted it to do the things it does and for people to like it for being dumb and move on and like make a trilogy out of it. Instead, they kind of like, well, it's cheaper just to make one movie and like extract as much from it as we can. And that's really what it became. And all that going into like Lynch, dealing with like a gigantic crew which he's his first time dealing with a crew this big like i feel like i'm not surprised by the result we get like it in all of those ways the movie is flawed and isn't like what we expect of a movie to be like nice and polished and put together um so in that way it's not very lynchian because like a lynchian movie to me is more like what happened after dune where he was so fed up with the studio system that he said, fuck off. Like, if you want me to make a movie, I make it at my way. And that's what Blue Velvet was. It was him finally, like, locking into what he wanted from, like, a bigger budget narrative. Um, and all of his movies from there on out just kind of get becoming more and more indulgent than what he does and what he does did so well in Blue Velvet. Um, that, so, yeah, Dune in that way is not very Lynchian. But there are so many Lynchian things about it that aren't as pronounced and aren't as like necessarily dreamlike as something like you watch them a whole and drive like oh that's a lynch movie like the way it moves and the way you move in and out of dreams and shit but dune it's it's lynchian and like how they're disgusting people (laughs) you know like boils on people's faces like really interesting looking extras standing around um the way we move in and out of people's heads when we're not sure what we're seeing is like a vision or reality there's just these little touches that i think lynch has um that unfortunately kind of get buried in what the studio wanted from this big sci-fi movie uh but are still there and if you're really really high they're like really there yeah that's (laughs) (laughs) it still felt very much in like not the filmmaking aesthetic but the like set aesthetic, the yeah, design aesthetic, totally, totally. Like those things felt very Lynchy to me. It's just not the the camera work. Um, yeah, right. But it's uh, or the et- the editing, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, it's a little blocky and how it like sometimes it can't. I, I think there are actually a lot of beautiful moments with the camera, but it is a little more stilted in that way. Yeah, I like. I think of him having more of a, like a roving camera or something, just a yeah. little more like on the ground. I know what you mean. Uh, but it was the sh- the cinematography is pretty great. There were some I love it awesome shots throughout the movie, which was kind of to me uh, 
the best part about the movie was just how visually beautiful it was. And I could imagine you with the 4K just going and eyeing. <laughs> it it, uh, it makes the word. I, I think this is true. It makes the movie worth watching. Like, yeah, of course, the, the movie's looks great like i agree with you i i love all of the sets like there's not a single frame in this movie where you don't can't look around and like see cool shit lying around it's, it's awesome um or like some really cool ornate wall and you're just like why why is that so extravagant um but it it it's the kind of movie in my opinion that like when you see it pop in the way 4k can offer especially from arrow who's doing really good transfers like I personally formed a deeper connection with the movie because of that, I believe. Yeah, I could see that very much being <laughs> the case. And it it did elevate it in ways. Um, like, I was happy to be watching it because I was so interested in what was going on visually mm-hmm. and what they were going to do. And I could imagine watching this in the 80s and truly being like, whoa. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, just thinking about the fact that this came out in 1984 and Blade Runner came out in 1982 <laughs> and just the gigantic, I feel like the, the visuals in Blade Runner are so much more <laughs> developed and dynamic and interesting. And the, the, like the graphics at the time mm-hmm. or the avant-gardeness of the, of the technology at the time. Uh, it's just you would think that dune is the older movie um (laughs) rather than blade runner being two years prior to dune it's funny how it can happen when dune has a way bigger budget yeah what like the budget for dune was 40 to 42 million and what was the budget for blade runner i mean today's dollars that's probably like a 200 million dollar movie or some shit (laughs) i know i was looking at that and like that had to have been excessive and obscene at the time uh, Blade Runner's budget was thirty million. Okay, so not drastic, but still, it, it, Dune. I, I guess more of what Dune is is like it had a bigger image. Like it was Dune. Like they're finally making a Dune. It has all these people's endorsements, including the guy who wrote the book. Like there was just a hype around this movie that built it up to be something bigger than it was. Yeah, I would have been. I didn't think it was a very good movie. I thought. It was a very interesting movie, but the dialogue, a lot of the the acting, a lot of the just the sequences and structure of it was just so unbelievably at times dumb, at times just silly and silly and not like necessarily a bad way. But especially now, one of the reasons I never watched this, especially after seeing the 2021 Dune was that I didn't want the story ruined mm. before I saw Doom Part 2. And now that I've seen Doom Part 2, now that I've written about Dune and Doom Part 2, um, or Part 1 and Part 2, and have a better insight into what Frank Herbert was going for with the book, yeah. the thematic swing and miss on this, which I guess has been the crux of the conversation amongst like book fans for a long time yeah was just so startling to me um i don't know how well you know dune the novel uh or and how far this is different from the intended thematic purpose of it Mm -hmm. like i think it's pretty accurate in terms of 
the story beats mm-hmm. um especially having seen doom part two and being like oh yeah i recognize this 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 and this but just the <laughs> the intention of the stories uh lynch just disregards it because i think they did want a star wars movie right so they wanted a luke skywalker figure rather than um something more complicated this episode is brought to you in part by noom forget one size fits all diets with noom you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle no food is off limits enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits noom's users love the flexible approach blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot Grab your copy of the Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally hear everything you're saying and I understand it. I I mean, it's a, it's a weird territory for me to step around because I know what people mean when they say things like everything you just said. And I, it makes me think that like Villeneuve's Dune is like a smart person's Dune in quotes, kind of. And I don't, I don't, I really don't mean that because I don't, I mean, I don't think I'm that fucking stupid. I'm, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but like, I like the old Dune. Like, I, I that's the kind of Dune I like. I, I feel like there's an image that the new Dune is more complicated because, yes, indeed, it probably does technically adhere to the book's themes and ideas a lot better because, well, it's a lot longer. Like, it, it has more time and space to navigate those things, to discuss them. And maybe it makes those themes more powerful in other ways too, just like from the cinematography that everyone seems to love. Um, I, I get it, but I, I was looking for this quote from Frank Herbert and I can't find it, but he essentially said, you know, when the movie came out, he's has from the day it came out, he remained like a defender of David Lynch's doing and said like, you know, everything in my book, like it's right there on screen The the producers came to me and asked me to sign off on Dune and say it was, um honest to my novel and like i gladly did it i didn't like fake it like i actually thought dave lynch did a good job that all of my ideas are there they're done in a very abstract way (laughs) and i guess a lot of people probably would argue that like if you don't even fucking understand it like what's the point of you didn't do a good job relaying the themes um but that's i think only applicable to a certain kind of viewer and again i don't mean to demean when i say that like I i think the the ostensible image of a smart movie is what Villeneuve did with Dune and how it does actually technically cover all the ground and offer you everything in a very like digestible way but it doesn't mean what Lynch did didn't work it doesn't mean that he didn't accurately capture all the themes in Dune in my opinion Um, and it seems like Frank Herbert agrees because it's just done in a very visually indulgent enigmatic way like it's it's all kind of unfolding at a bizarre and anti-narrative manner like you don't really like understand what's happening in terms of a narrative but like you can see all the things that are happening and like see how paul is changing and like what he's realizing about himself in the universe there's just so much in it that has that that i think typically the the image is like oh like 
dumber people like this. <laughs> Here you go. Like here's like a visually exotic uh, cinematic land that like you can pretend is like doing all this deep stuff. But I guess in my mind, like if you are visually conveying everything in these really weird experimental visuals, um, then you you are covering the ground in a really intelligent way. It's just not the kind of you're just not doing it the kind of way that's going to appeal to like ninety percent of movie watchers. <laughs> That's all. I agree so much with that, but it's there's a core. I don't want to spoil Doom Part Two. Yeah, for those that haven't watched it yet, and might hear this before they go see the movie. Though there's like ten people that that might be, <laughs> or even for yourself. Yeah. Um. But there's like a pretty sizable. It's not just like, uh, a difference in like approach to it but it's like there's a key part of the thematic point of the books that lynch didn't oh convey at all we we might be discussing that actually because i do think there's one gigantic crime against this movie that even frank herbert agrees about maybe we'll Um, talk about it yeah so i that's kind of the thing to me where it's like it's no amount of like visuals or like difference in like approach is what the difference is here yeah it's like a core misunderstanding of yes like paul's (laughs) journey okay gosh i i'm scared to talk about it because i feel like i know what you're talking about um i mean if you know if you know i like i mostly just don't want to spoil things or like Okay. get into things for you but i guess people that are going to watch this episode probably know the book well enough i guess so maybe we just put a little the 1984 film we put a little spoiler warning here potentially yeah spoiler warning there you okay go. so can i can i say what i think you're gonna say yeah 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 and if, and it's if right, i'm wrong we'll talk the, about it yeah. and if it's wrong we'll leave it okay the biggest problem with this movie and i, I the other part of i'll put this first the other part of me loving this movie is like if I was going to literally look at David Lynch movies and just rank them by like how much I like them in terms of lynchiness, you know, <laughs> like that I want a David Lynch movie. Like, what do I watch? Like, I'd probably rank this near the bottom. But part of why I love this movie is that it merges two of my loves, which is weird, enigmatic David Lynch and like so bad they're good movies or like movies with so bad they're good is just in quotes, by the way, like movies that have this very bizarre story attached to them it is outside the typical territory we see from movies which are like you know all nice and polished and put together like no this was a fucking mess um that's what dune was and that's why david lynch to this day will not answer questions about dune like does not want to talk about dune they shot it in mexico it was like super hot the electricity kept going out people were getting sick it was a six-month shoot like (laughs) he hated the experience like i understand um so on that level, like that's it's part of why I'm fascinated by Dune. It's just so, like it's insane that it got made, <laughs> that this exists, that David Lynch tried so hard to make it a Lynchy movie, and the studio just came in and like you know put people's voices in, and we we heard in our monologues, and they chopped up all of the fight scenes that made them look stupid, and for the soundtrack not to work, and you know all these like really dumb choices that clearly weren't done by a filmmaker. Um, those even though those take away from the movie, that's part of why I love the movie. Like I like reading about the history of movies. I like forming a connection with the movie in that way and kind of understanding it on that deeper level. So like while I'm watching it, like I'm kind of also seeing like 
all of the flaws and like everything that prevented it from being more. Um, that's probably why I love this movie. And the biggest thing, the, the biggest sin that what happened, <laughs> the biggest sin that that entire relationship brought to this movie was the fact that Paul is seen as a savior figure as somebody. Yes. Okay. So this is what you're going to talk about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that he is, he's the right person for this moment for the universe to lead them. And I, I was actually reading about, uh, Frank Herbert has this introduction. What's it called? It's called Introduction to I. I don't know if this is a book or something that he wrote, or maybe it's like a, a memoir or diaries or something. But he had this little passage about Dune. E even though he's sitting there praising Dune and loves what it what it's doing and thinks it does a lot of it right, it's mostly the ending that he has a problem with. And so this is what he says. Paul was a man playing God, not a God who can make it rain. Dune was aimed at this whole idea of the infallible leader because my view of history says mistakes made by a leader or made in a leader's name are amplified by the numbers who follow without question. That's how 900 people wound up in Guyana drinking poison Kool-Aid. That's how the U.S. said, yes, sir, Mr. Charismatic John Kennedy and found itself embroiled in Vietnam. That's how Germany said, seek, seek Heil. Is it seek heal? <laughs> seek heal, yeah. yeah. And murdered more than 6 million of our fellow human beings leadership and our dependence on it how and why we choose particular leaders is as much misunderstood is a much misunderstood historical phenomenon and that to me is like where this movie could have been powerful and really connect the dots and i think does do it for most of the movie until the very end when paul is anointed as like you know the one yeah yep <laughs> yeah that's that was the thing that i I was like, it's really just going down the path of Paul being like the Luke Skywalker figure rather than yeah. the Darth Vader. I and... know. That's what I was thinking. I actually had that thought in my head as I was watching it this time. And I had never put the dots together on that, that that was what the movie was maybe trying to do or what Frank Herbert was trying to do. And I had a passing thought of like, he's kind of like an Anakin figure in a way. And then the more I thought about it and read about it, I was like, oh, like that's what he was trying to do. Yeah, no, that's like... In so much so that I didn't know anything about Dune before watching part one and then part two. And now that I've seen part one and part two and know like what Herbert did, I think a bit less about Star Wars <laughs> because it went from feeling very original to me with like, sure, he probably had some inspiration to feeling incredibly derivative and in a reductive way. Um, yeah. to where I'm like far more impressed with what Frank Herbert was saying than George Lucas turning it into like a theme park ride. Um, mm -hmm. Which, you know, the the original Star Wars trilogy is still like a great trilogy and the fall of Anakin is still a great twist on it, like his own story on it. It just feels a little less uh, like the source, right? right. Um, and now Dune to me is just like, oh, that, that was where <laughs> the depth was. Yeah. That is where more of the thought is though. I feel like Dune, the novels get a little messy in terms of just how much stuff they have going on and for sure, maybe how melodramatic it seems like some of the, the next books gets and the whole world gets, um, but Dune part two, I feel like boil that story down in such a great way 
that it meant going from that to this felt very, <laughs> very uh, a movie that's trying to be Star Wars. Yeah, it, <laughs> like that flaw felt all the more apparent, especially after seeing it. I think before Villeneuve's Dune existed, you could just be like, it's a lot. And maybe he missed out on it. But if he did a second movie, maybe he would have gone for it. Uh, but then you see how Villeneuve handles it and you're just like, yeah, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested um, to see it because I, I imagine it just becomes I, I mean, it has just more, more room and space to breathe in the movie. I imagine like we're exploring that side of Paul. Yeah, yeah. And that, like, the twist becomes a lot more of a, a gut punch. Hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that's that's great. That I, I'm totally with you in the sense that if it's adapting Dune, it should have that aspect of Dune. <laughs> that's an important part of, of Frank Herbert's Dune that's reflective of history and teaches us something. Like, what does... The ending of Dune, David Lynch's Dune really teach us what is Star, what is Luke Skywalker. I mean, obviously they they can teach us things, but it it doesn't carry the same energy that Frank Herbert intended. Yeah, which is that superheroes are just normal people that are flawed, and we give them all this power, and then yeah. they end up like fucking us over. <laughs> yeah, and instead, it just feels like at the end of Dune, like. Paul's great, isn't he? He's the one that was uh, chosen. There's also like a whole thing in there that all the Fremen myths that they're relying on to be like, he's the one, he's the one, were planted by the Bene Gesserit specifically for this purpose. So it's like the the myths that add power are just man-made things that they've been manipulated into believing, which is really tragic. Um that their whole like it creates that like underlying falseness to what it means that he's like Lisa and Al Gaib um, mm. that you don't really get from this movie. And this movie is just like, yeah. no, these were the prophecies. Yeah. I, um, gosh, I, I'm going to keep saying the sentence over and over. Like, I know what you mean. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I agree with that narrative in general. Like, I think the movie could have done a way better job <clears throat> of conveying that, Paul is nothing more than a demagogue. Like he's the same figure we've seen over and over and over. Uh, represents that whole cycle. <clears throat> but I don't think the necess- the movie necessarily like any moment where <clears throat> it feels like he is being propelled to the savior figure. It feels again kind of done by the studio or done in like I guess it's mostly the ending when it rains and like the little sister is just awing about him. We get like one of some little. I don't even know what she says about him that like announces to everybody like how great he is. Um, He's the Kwisatz Haderach. Yeah. And the fact that it's like raining, which is like an act of God. (laughs) Uh, I I will say in the last draft that Lynch wrote for the movie, there was no rain. Like I I still wonder, we will never know because Dave Lynch won't talk about this crazy ass movie anymore. Um, but how much because he really did love Dune and he had a relationship with Frank Herbert and everything. And he had a good relationship with Dino De Laurentiis and he wanted to make Dune. So, like, I feel like he probably did understand what the book was in some sense. And it just kind of got removed from the movie after the final edit. But the mm-hmm. the last draft of the script does say here's the part where. um The part where we go into Paul's eyes and it goes into like an ocean, you know. And then the rain comes. 
Um, this is what he wrote. We moved through Paul's glowing blue eyes into the beautiful blue, luminescent blue light. Uh, I wrote blue twice. It, I'm assuming that's not what it is. <laughs> it's David Lynch's crazy. A gigantic wind arises, and suddenly appearing in the blue light is an ocean of light rolling like gold glass off into infinite. The blue becomes darker, and a, and a golden lotus flower blooms in the night. And that's how the movie was going to end. Um, again, like not super, uh, it, it doesn't convey, like, it's tough to watch that and understand like, oh, like I know what the movie's doing. Like it's this weird experimental, like dreamlike bit. Um, but to me, like that all conveys an image of like what Paul has become to these people and what he represents more than it actually, um, lifts him to that status and says like this is what we should aspire to i feel like there is still a sense in this movie of like what paul's doing is a little scary like there's a, a shot where he's standing in front of the freeman standing atop this tower and it looks straight out of triumph of the will like it looks like the exact scene of hitler speaking to his people like i don't think that's a an accident like i think that is an aspect of the movie it just doesn't land it doesn't stick the landing at the end, essentially. Like, it doesn't make it as powerful as it should, like you're saying that Doom Part 2 probably does. Yeah, that that shot comparison, if there's like more stuff like that, would be awesome. Yeah. It does seem like the, the final cut getting taken from Lynch and these producers really wanting their Star Wars moment is what <laughs> ruined it. I was reading this note about Jodorowsky, uh-huh. and that Jodorowsky was like really bitter about it and refused to see the movie for a long time and when his sons finally got him to watch it he was happy because it was a failure <laughs> um but that it was certainly and this is in uh, it wasn't in quotes but that it was certainly the producer's fault and not lynch's yeah so it was jodorowsky seemed to also <laughs> pick up on that I, I i read this great quote from jodorowsky and I, I don't think he was talking about lynch's dune i think maybe he was just talking about dune the book but he said like the great will think dune is great and the simple will think it's simple something like that i don't know something to that but basically like you have to be invested in dune to really get it and he was probably just jealous in that way because like he got the book he wanted to make like probably what a lot of dune fans wanted and instead we got what came out of a studio hacking up lynch's version of it yeah yeah so that's that's kind of a a shame because you do wonder is that why everybody for like years is like Lynch's cut, Lynch's cut, Lynch's cut. <laughs> um, I I think that I so I I heard this somewhere. I also watched the um, commentary for this movie, and there was a story about. I mean, obviously, there's the the whole um, story that Lynch will not answer questions about Dune. Like he never talks about it, but recently he finally did answer some questions about dune and they asked like will there be a director's cut and he basically said like i would like to do it someday maybe but like there's other stuff i'm just more interested in i'm still suffering from trauma from the shoot 30 40 years later <laughs> <laughs> um and i'm pretty sure if i looked at the footage it wouldn't be interesting enough to me to like put it together so yeah i think there is hope that all of it comes together someday but lynch i mean shit he's in his 70s now like and he wants to keep doing what he does. I'm not sure he's going to go back to Dune. Mm. Mm. That's a shame. Yeah. 
and I, I mean, there have been versions and other cuts of it over the years, and there are even like a lot of fan cuts and shit, you know. Um, but I don't know if we'll ever see someone truly invest in like, I don't know if there's a demand for the old Dune, you know. Yeah, uh, apparently the producer um, De Laurentiis said that he had talked with David and David was willing to do it. When was this? Um, uh, just earlier this or last year. Oh, really? Yeah, and apparently the studio didn't want to pay Lynch anything, <laughs> and he the Lynch was just like that. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I guess this is going back to, I don't know. I should get more context for it, but it says for years after David Lynch told the press he wished to go back and take a second pass, although a three-hour cut was manufactured by Universal Television, it was about Lynch and De Laurentiis. So I guess this was before that. Well, and that's why they use the Alan Smithy. Yeah, I, part of me wonders. Like, I I agree that adding certain scenes would help give more context to things and make things make more sense. And maybe he can get rid of that annoying inner monologue. Um, but I'm also kind of like, I kind of, I like the movie the way it is. Like I, I feel like it kind of works. Not kind of, I think it works. Like I, I think everything is there to convey the ideas of Dune. Um, again, very done in a very enigmatic way and not entirely discernible, but to like, to polish it up, to like make things make more sense. <laughs> sounds terrible to say would like take away from what I like about dude. <laughs> that sounds exactly like what you would say. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it feels in some ways like a, a spiritual successor to the Mario brothers movie. <laughs> the the new one, the old, like oh. the original 1990s it super Mario brothers. Definitely movie. has that feel. Uh, like whoever, <laughs> Like, I, I imagine the people that made the Super Mario Brothers movie were just like, I love David Lynch's Dune. It's the best movie. We're going to make our version of Dune. I mean, th that really is like, I guess we can start, stop talking about how good or bad Dune is at like conveying the themes of Herbert's novel. Because I think most people just agree like, nah, it doesn't really stick the landing. But all of the other shit, which to me is important to the profundity of a movie and forming a connection with the movie and understanding it is all of the costumes, all of the sets, uh, the theatrical acting we're seeing from people. Like people are just, I love all the performances in this movie. The only, the only bummer to me is Steen, who I think is good, but they don't give him anything to do in this movie, which is ridiculous. <laughs> like you yeah, have he's Steen, barely... he's going to run around and act like Steen, like use that. Um, but I, I, I just love, I just love the aesthetic of the movie. I love the way it looks and feels. I all of the it, the other thing Lynch does that I I mentioned earlier is it's not a typical Hollywood thing to do. It's not a cool thing to do. Like Hollywood movies have like a bunch of beautiful people standing around. Like there are a bunch of like odd looking people standing around in a Lynch movie. <laughs> like all of the um, emperors men, like all of his like cabinet guys <laughs> that like sit down in the chairs together at the end. Like they're all like old dudes just like normal looking guys <laughs> they look like my dad um <laughs> I, I don't know there's just there's something very enchanting to me about just the investment people had in this movie um i i've read a quote i can't remember who it was but like he was talking about the atmosphere on the final day of the shoot and even though like it was such a trying shoot and everyone kind of perceived it as a failure even as they were making it like there was joy at the end of it, like that they had accomplished something that like all this hard work kind of paid off in a weird way. 
Um, and I think that comes through in the movie. Like, I think everyone's kind of giving it. They're all on all angles, even if everything isn't exactly always working and meshing properly. <laughs> and the, all the scenes with the Baron are so like, <laughs> you could tell they were Lynch's favorite scenes. I have insight into this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I just know that I see scenes like that and it does make me think of, I haven't watched Phil Neves doing it in a bit. I'm going to watch it for the next podcast, but um, I don't remember any sort of like humor around the Harkonnens. Um, no. <laughs> and there would be, when the Harkonnens were doing their shoots, Lynch would screw up tanks, takes because he would start laughing while they were doing it. Like to him, it was funny. It was, it, it's part of also why I love this movie in comparison to Villeneuve's Dune is like Lynch's Dune has levity to it. Um, there's more like, pop and character in, in a way a lot of ways that i appreciate and yeah like all the stuff the harkonnens like it's so insane like nobody we should all be looking at each other and be like this is ridiculous right like it's it's <laughs> so absurd in a way that i i love and find very entertaining yeah i mean i that was one of the things as i watched it i was like oh this is one of the reasons travis feels that Villeneuve's version is so stale in comparison because you have uh you don't have this kind of energy that you're getting right. from <laughs> any group of characters everything is so much more uh severe yeah and draconian in how it's going or even the the hand in the box scene yeah right when they do the test with paul it's like i find that scene to be very beautiful villeneuve's in just how tempered it is in the the shot selection mm -hmm. of it yeah but it doesn't have the same visceral liveliness right. of Lynch's with the graphic of the hand burning and melting and uh, just the difference in like the flow of the scene uh, where in Lynch's version, it's what, like two minutes total maybe. Mm -hmm. And in Villeneuve's it's like a eight to 10 minute scene from the time that you have him walking down and there's, pacing issues that will appeal not issues but pacing differences that will appeal to uh different kind of audiences yeah i i totally hear what you're saying that and i understand that i could see how someone with my kind of taste would prefer the lynch and i could see how someone would prefer a more refined tempered approach that villeneuve i mean it's not the knock villeneuve like he's very successful and he does obviously and he has a very specific aesthetic of his movies i but it's just not really what I like to watch. Oh, not not even that. Like I think if done well, it, it can work. But <laughs> I, I maybe it's that I think it's it's uh it's less easy to screw up when you're doing it Lynch's way. Like don't just talk about the burning hand. Like show me the fucking burning hand. <laughs> you know, and he does that <laughs> right. I need to see it. I uh I I do think that you're going to like. You still might be lukewarm on part one, but I do think that there's more to part two that even if it doesn't win you over, I think you'll at least be happier with it. Okay. Then with part one, but we'll, we'll see. That I'm interested. Could be famous last words. Um, <laughs> one thing I didn't understand until I watched the movie, I always hear people jokingly say like spice melange. <laughs> And I never knew why. I mean, I knew it was from the 1984 Doom, but I didn't have any context for why they would whisper it like that and be like, Spice. And then watching and having all the 
the internal monologue just be the whisper the whole time. Oh, for sure. I was laughing so hard because I just can't imagine what it would have been like in 1984, <laughs> like coming out of the theater and everybody just quoting this movie to each other. Like you're at work or you're with friends and somebody says something and you're just like, why did they do that? <laughs> Maybe we'll never know. <laughs> it's, I, it might be the greatest like gag after a movie or like my favorite like post movie reference ever now because it's just so ridiculous and so humorous. They've got a no doom though for the joke to land. What? Say that again. Sorry. I just like, they need the no doom for that joke to land though. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm going to be whispering to people from now on thinking I'm being funny and people are just going to think I'm being creepy. (laughs) All that's going to happen is they're going to like, what are you doing? And you're going to explain that it's from Dune. You're going to make people watch Dune. So really what you're doing is spreading the word. Ah, good point, good point, good point. So you can see that as a blessing or a curse, I guess. Yeah. I see it as a blessing. I convinced 75 people this month to watch Dune. (laughs) Wow, those are good numbers. Yeah, that would be... You met your quota. More people than listen to an episode of this podcast. No, no. We get get a couple hundred. Just a couple. That's it, though. All right. Do you have a favorite part in this movie? Uh, favorite part in the movie, uh, I just keep thinking the one question that kept running through my mind last night was why do the worms create lightning? Why would you Uh, ask such a silly question? I know, I know. (laughs) Uh, my favorite part was the inexplicable (laughs) punishment that the guy had to milk cats that happened to have a rat attached to it. Yeah, that was crazy. I, I, I still really don't like really that. know what that is. No, it just seems like I don't. That's not in the book, right? I imagine not. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't read the book. Yeah, I don't think it's in. The, I mean, I guess I should Google it right now, real fast. <laughs> Dune is there cat milking? Uh, by milking the smooth little cat, it's never adequately explained why the cat is in the contraption or what milking a cat's body entails. Uh, I don't think it's I don't think it's in (laughs) I don't think it's in the novel Um, so that was absurd to me and pretty wonderful Uh, and then I guess the worms were cool as well yeah Um, very 1980s version of that uh, yeah monster very much (laughs) very much so and uh probably just those two things yeah um yeah that would do it i i I love a lot of little bits in this movie that i think are just like again this is appealing to the like how did this get made so bad it's good part of my brain that i'm like yeah this movie was dumb and like didn't work but like it had all this cool shit in it um like there's so many moments like that in here like when patrick stewart has a skullet like you see that and you're just like whoa <laughs> what a bizarre choice yeah. <laughs> um and like um the cat thing and like the war pug that patrick stewart always has you know oh yeah the pug that it has a lot of moments in the movie it even gets like its own moment once in a while you just see it running down a hallway for whatever reason um and the scene where we think it's the last time we're going to see Patrick Stewart, he runs into battle while holding the pug. 
<laughs> which is a crazy thing to do. And then we see him later and he doesn't have the pug and we think that, you know, we get no closure on the pug. But in the last scene where Paul's walking into the chamber where he's going to fight Fade, like there's a little kid there and he's holding a pug. And you're like, is that the pug? Is um, that the same pug? <laughs> there's just like weird shit like that in it. Um, the other thing I really love is <clears throat> part of, um, and I assume this has to do with just like the budget didn't permit anything easier or healthier, but all of the black smoke that's going on during the fight scenes is actually from burning rubber tire, like burning tires. Oh, oh. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I don't remember where I took this quote from, but it was somebody on the movie said, accidentally breathing it would stun your vocal cords. Um, and there's actually, actually that might've been Kyle McLaughlin, I think. And he said that he went to talk to Patrick Stewart and like Patrick Stewart started to talk and like, couldn't say anything. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which is insane. Um, yeah. But I think my favorite part of the movie is just all of those dreamy hypnotic visuals where Paul, after he like takes the spice and after he drinks the water of life that he's able to transcend time and space and like look forward into the future and see, like, I just think all of that stuff is really pretty and cool how it a is like doing something interesting in a visual sense and showing us all these images that are going to pay off and make more sense down the line um but also just um conveying the theme of somebody becoming more in touch with the world and um being in multiple places at once like this idea that you have feelings pocketed throughout the universe in that kind of like hippy dippy way where like you understand you you know you're connected with like people from various places and can empathize with like the situation and energies in other places and you know it does all this stuff that i think is cool that could have been developed a lot more and um does kind of bum me out that in the end it's the movie's not seen as more of a cautionary tale of like what can happen when you take that energy too far when you kind of think you rule over all these things you know and everyone needs to follow your lead and see the things how you see the world um that to me goes against what david lynch typically does in his movies like that's usually a character's downfall uh but in this it's not really presented that way so it's it, it makes the visuals even more interesting to me though <laughs> than that like all these weird hypnotic dream sequences like that it, it it's not gonna pay off like it doesn't convey the theme that like the movie ends up conveying yet it like secretly it's what did lynch wants you to think about the movie you know um i just like all those scenes to me carry i'll carry that energy to this day for me they are beautiful again the the shots throughout the movie are great i, I um, of all the stuff that gets cut out of the movie i can't believe that's what stayed in like that's the most lynchy stuff right there yeah it is. It, you know, those sequences, the movie, as you were talking, it made me realize, I feel like this movie, I connected it to the Mario Brothers movie, but I feel like this movie, when you're talking about all the trippy space stuff, I was like, this movie came out 20 years after 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh-huh. <laughs> and there's just, you would think that this came out before 2001 A Space Odyssey in some ways. It made me imagine uh or think about it in terms of like jason and the argonauts mm-hmm. like those classic yeah almost like claymation uh movies from the what year were those coming out like the 30s 40s yeah like old ass movies. Um, which i love those movies were really cool where you just see the claymation skeleton chasing a human actor the uh 
condor or griffin yeah. attacking or something those movies were like a dime a dozen back then yeah there's something about this movie that kind of has that energy for sure to me about it yeah. but leveled up um which is kind of cool in some ways the same way like blade runner feels like a culmination of a lot of uh the noir movies or noir movies mm-hmm. from the yeah. like 40s and 50s and just kind of blending it into the sci-fi era like taking a lot of that Jason and the Argonauts kind of energy and turning it into an 80s sci-fi blockbuster. Right. Yeah. And I mean, Blade Runner 2 was a movie that was fraught with edits and what the studio wanted yeah. and the cuts and all that. Um, and I think that's just a sign of like, you know, we are in the 80s at this point. That's when the, the sci-fi movies you're talking about that were really successful in like the 40s, 50s, 60s and ha- certain aesthetic suddenly studios wanted to capitalize on these things and make a Star Wars and make something bigger. Um, and it became a little bit of a mess and not as simple as what they used to be. And there was something really powerful and attractive and entertaining about their simplicity and about just watching a bunch of dudes go and fight and watching a lame claymation, <laughs> watching them fight some lame claymation creature. Like There was a sense of fun and levity in that that I think appealed to a lot of people. Yeah, That kind of gets stripped away in this new, like it's there and it's like a bigger version of it yet like the editing doesn't always work like you can see like the studio just chopped up this fight scene um it doesn't have like the the uplifting air of like the older stuff the kind of like innocent like these are just a bunch of people getting together to make a movie kind of air instead it's like a big budget mess um so yeah all that stuff's there but it's um just a little uh (laughs) watered down and I do, before we get into rankings, the last thing I want to mention, which was, you know, we talked about the flaws in this movie or there's scenes that maybe don't work. I think there's one just truly egregious thing uh, where I don't even think most of the movie has like egregious moments. It's just like, that's silly, that's goofy, but it kind of works. It's kind of in tone. The one thing I think is absolutely like outrageous is when Jessica and uh paul run from the worm after the ship crashes Mm -hmm. and they end up in the rocks and the worms hitting the rocks Uh and you have the moment where the rock splits open yeah and paul goes sliding down the rock he goes down like a little slide like my daughter does at the park yeah he goes down the slide and then falls for a long time (laughs) to the point where he's like Falling through the air, striking rocks, rolling, falling again. It was like the scene out of uh, Hot Rod. Hot Rod, yeah. Where yeah. Uh, what's his face just Doesn't goes that make falling you like down. I love that scene in Hot Rod, <laughs> but in Dune, it's just so. So you got to get on my wavelength. You see that, and you're like, all right, this is what this movie's about. Yeah, I should instead of viewing it as an outlier that's ridiculous, I should view it as the benchmark that the Absolutely. rest of the movie's trying to catch the foundation. up to. Yeah, but I was just so like, it has to end now, right? No, he just hits another rock and keeps falling. And then immediately is just like, oh, I'm going to roll out of this boulder. It's like he would be pulp on the ground. It was such an amazingly over the top. I think in hindsight, I'd probably enjoy it more. But on the first watch, it was so inexplicable to me. You got to be in the right state of mind, if you know what I mean, Chris. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I know what you mean. I know um, what you mean. Two things I want to mention really quick and then we'll be done. First of all, you were mentioning <clears throat> references people have made to Dune over the years that like I-, I was starting to research this a little bit and realize like it's been quoted in songs like a ton. 
Um, and not just, I, I guess they're probably quoting the novel Dune, but there are exact passages taken out of this movie Dune that I assume, like, it's kind of referring to the movie and the novel. Like, um, the beginning of Intergalactic starts with the words, well, the spice is the worm and the worm is the spice, <laughs> which is like an exact line from this movie. And I just think that's hilarious. <laughs> um, but yeah, go yeah. go research that, like all the different like little lyrical nods to do. And it's great. That's pretty funny. I wonder how many people have. I know that there's some other movie that I've watched where they go like spice, <laughs> but I can't think about some parody. I can't remember what it is right now. <laughs> Um, and the other thing I want to read is I was looking around. I don't usually do this, but I got on Twitter today and I was looking around at like people's reactions to Dune and I found a thread on Lynch's Dune. You know, everyone's generally talking about like, it's cool, but it's a failure. Um, <clears throat> and I found this one tweet that was great. Sorry, I should have should have wrote down who wrote this tweet. I'm sorry I didn't. Um, but you, you made a great tweet, tweet whoever you are. Uh, tweet. <laughs> That's a new website I'm starting by, by the way, Quitter. Um, <laughs> where you can quit things. on things yeah uh lynch's dune is a great lynch's dune is great as a lynch film which is ironic considering the studio did its best to take the lynchness out of it and strangely made it even more lynchian in the process lynch which i think <laughs> nightly wraps up this movie in that like it's a failure but it's a failure where like these people were trying to make it not Lynch and like it still was Lynch. <laughs> so like it became more Lynch because <laughs> like the whole thing of Mulholland Drive, you know, and, and a lot of his movies, people are like, kind of in this, like they're imagining a world or like they're living in a fantasy and then they're like pulled back in the reality. And like, you could view a lot of this movie that way. Like Lynch was trying to do that, you know, that this is all just like Paul projecting, like how people view him and the kind of man he could become the guy doing the commentary on the on dune made a joke that like i wouldn't be surprised if like there's another version of dune where paul wakes up at the end and he's just a regular guy who's mad he doesn't have more of a place in the world and then he goes to the winkies diner in Mahon drive so it's just the guy you know that tells about it talks about his dream yeah yeah that would be amazing like that i could see lynch essentially go in for something like that yeah if he did a re a reshoot of it and had that be the end, I would be so happy. <laughs> that would be uh, a great fan cut. The tweet was from uh, some guy underscore nine. Thank you. You're always you're always Drew really good o. about mentioning people's handles. Yeah, I try. I try to give credits. I try to give credit. It's it's my fault. It's I. This is all on me because like I just can't stand being on Twitter and like I would never like want one of my tweets read. So in a way, like I'm hiding you. <laughs> you're looking out. I'm putting the magnifying glass. <laughs> Okay. Uh so where's this rank for you? Um, like I said, like even though I understand that it's a flawed movie and that there are plenty of reasons to not like it, I love it for the reasons I like it. Um, it is in my essential category, which is the second highest category for me. Um it comes in at number thirty eight of five hundred I still have to add a few movies. It's close to five sixty at this point. That's amazing. What an outrageous thing. And the movie sandwich is Out of Sight from 1998 to George Clooney, Jennifer Lopez rom-com. Oh, wow. Which is an incredible movie. It's a Steven Soderbergh movie. Um, one of the prettiest movies I've ever seen. Uh, then Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> a movie I love. I've seen many times. These are all movies that like I have a, a deep connection to that goes beyond like, 
I think everyone will like this. I'm just like, no, I like this. Yeah. Um, then Dune, then Sideways, the 2004 Paul Giamatti wine romp, and <laughs> <laughs> and Jackass the movie. What? <laughs> what a weird place in your rankings. Yeah, uh, those movies existed. Jackass the movie, by the way, is is a masterpiece. Like it's it, it's it's the movie I've seen most removed from a narrative ever. Like it's just it's <laughs> irreverent in how little it cares about like painting, constructing some sort of story and through line, and more is just like just irreverent. Like people run kids running around and doing stuff they think is going to entertain you. Did you see the the quote from Denis about dialogue? Um, no, I have not. So he has recently been doing press for Dune Two. Is he? Huh. And yeah, strange. And he said that movies have been corrupted by TV because like I'm not interested right. in dialogue at all. Pure image and sound. That is the power of cinema. Frankly, I hate dialogue. Dialogue is for theater and TV. I don't remember movies because of a good line. I I agree with him wholeheartedly. I, I think that's part of what makes, I still think to this day, Polytechnique is his best movie. And it easily has the least talking in it. <laughs> um, it you know, I and I like I connect with all that. And I see that in his movies. Like, part of me wonders if someday I will click with Villeneuve because he does have a certain aesthetic that just for whatever reason doesn't appear appeal to me and like we've talked like I think it's a little stilted and stale sometimes um that I can never quite penetrate it but I do I mean I like everything he's saying like I see that he wants to do that I think I feel like if those dots can be connected he makes like my kind of movie yeah I could see it I could see it I'm hoping for it I'm just hoping for you too yeah I mean I've watched prisoner three four times now trying to like it <laughs> keep making myself like it i know one of these days one of these days um also my rankings uh which are in categories but within the category it's not like a they're alphabetical yeah so dune comes in at 155 of 197 but that's in the almost category so it goes almost not quite not for me and really not for me at the bottom. Okay, I'm surprised it's that high to be honest. Yeah, it's uh, right underneath neutral. Yeah. So, I, like, it's kind of positive. Like, it's it's mostly the I can get behind how outrageous it is, and the shots are like really gorgeous, and it is a side of one of the like I would say a very important filmmaker that you don't otherwise get to see from him, mm-hmm. which is very fascinating as well as just kind of a, an artifact um, yeah. to exist. So there's stuff around the movie and within the movie that I think is really cool and like, worthwhile. It's just there's also so much within the movie that is patently absurd um, that knocks it down some pegs. But that crazy energy that it kind of has uh, at parts. We didn't even talk about how terrifying Aaliyah is. Um, <laughs> like, just 
demented and terrified. But then at times you just see it's actually just a little kid walking over rubble and having yeah. to do things, But which is really funny. That little kid, and I wish I I, don't, I can get her name right. Oh, Alicia Witt. Um, she in... I found out something crazy about her. And again, like that's part of why I love Dune is like every time I read about Dune, like I read about something else crazy that's going on in this movie. And that, that girl, like her parents claim she could speak as soon as she came out of the womb. Like there's all these like reports <laughs> about her and that she could like describe aerial views of something before ever seeing it, that she could recite Romeo and Juliet by heart. Like when she was three like there's all this weird stuff about her and um her life <laughs> and that she, so basically they're positing that when she came to play the Alia part is it Alia Alia uh, uh yeah Alia Paul's sister that she like already knew the part in a sense like she was that part oh man <laughs> that crazy. is that is it sounds made up from but it's still fascinating I was going to say that's such a Hollywood thing, but she's from Massachusetts. <laughs> I yeah, I guess there's I some imagine... old clip of her on some TV show reciting Romeo and Juliet. Okay. <laughs> At an absurdly cool. young age. Yeah. She's uh she's also in Vanilla Sky. Oh, really? She plays Libby, but I don't remember who Libby is. I got to I got to look this up right now. I want to yeah. know Libby. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And she it's the 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 girl at um like the secretary at um oh the at the company yeah at the company okay nice i i love like i'm looking at all of her filmography and there's not really like a lot of movies that you can see that she's like she had a role in like 2 weeks notice yeah. in 2002 like last holiday 88 minutes but there's nothing oh. like big right she's she yeah she's in, she's the main girl in urban legend i you know what i was looking at her like i feel like i recognize her from something i was just looking at her from vanilla sky yeah she's the i mean i guess not a lot of people have seen urban legend but it's like it was like <laughs> i mean it, it was kind of big at the time it was like a basically yeah. a scream i know what you did last summer knockoff and yeah she was i remember I remember the trailers for it and being like, oh, man, I really want to see that. And then not catching it in theater, but catching it on HBO and being like, that was really bad. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a lame version of those movies. Yeah. Uh, but I'm looking at like her TV roles. I guess she had like a role in Friday Night Lights. Like it's a lot of stuff from the 90s and like early parts of the 2000s. Mm -hmm. And then a few random like roles here and there. Um, and then on The Masked Singer she was one of the competitors oh. and i was just like that is such a crazy thing to ask the hosts to know yeah that's crazy is <laughs> like alicia witz had a very like good career in hollywood but at the same time i don't know if it's a career where if you were singing on a a show like mass singer they'd be like i know who this is this is clearly alicia witt <laughs> well on mass singer they get like clues and shit right yeah, but usually the people that you have on there are like kind of A, B list people. <clears throat> yeah, except that crazy guy from Dukes of, Haz Dukes of Hazard. <clears throat> you hear about him? Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was on the show, I know, and I would say that's like 
at this point C-list. Like nobody remembers the guys from Dukes of Hazard. Um, yeah, it's such a broken and dumb show. <laughs> but he said all this stuff about like putting Biden in a set in jail. Like he was saying like really crazy stuff. It was almost like he was using the mass scener as like a platform to get all his message out. Oh no. What? <laughs> Something like that. I know, okay. can you believe it? Crazy. Um anything else then? No, we're gonna be doing I mean, technically we're doing t- we're doing two Dune Part Two next episode. Like that's gonna be the episode title, but I imagine we're gonna be talking about both movies. Yeah, yeah. We'll be doing part one and part two when we discuss. So yep. be ready, Travis. Be ready. I will say that I feel like you described earlier that I have a lukewarm reaction to Dune. I really, really, really hated Dune when I saw it. <laughs> um, and I think this will be the first time in my life that I rewatch a movie I hated this much the first time. Um, wow. So, <laughs> I mean, I've changed since a few years ago since it came out. Maybe I will be more connected to some of it, um, but maybe I won't. <laughs> I almost makes me wonder if you should watch part two and then go back and watch part one um maybe maybe i will i don't know i i don't know maybe i will do you think that's a good idea uh i have no idea (laughs) i probably will watch them in order yeah i can see watching them in order but you know the story so well but yeah i just watch them in order and see what happens but i part of it for me is gonna be being with Villeneuve's aesthetic and like what he's going for on a visual and tonal level like I do want to be in that and give it another chance like I know it's not usually my thing but like sometimes you just need like the right moment and mood for it all to click yeah um and part two does start like right where part one ends so that would be weird if it didn't (laughs) yeah that's true you just missed two weeks and they don't explain any of it (laughs) I mean TV shows love to do that, that shit. That was the worst part of... That was maybe the most egregious thing that Dune did, for, in my opinion. Well, not the most egregious, but one of them. When the, when <laughs> Paul's like giving a little um, voiceover montage, and he's like, two years go by. Oh, yeah. I was like, right? two They're years? Like, two years? <laughs> like, okay, sure. And Aaliyah goes from like just a baby to like a terrifying little person. Yeah, she's like Bella's daughter. Yeah. <laughs> the true ones get it. Uh, yeah. What was her name? Uh, Renesme. Renesme. That's it. A combination a of weird. Renee and Esme. Yeah. Because who wouldn't do that? Of course. That? Of course. It's the logical. Are you surprised? Uh, all right. Twilight and Dune are next to each other in my rankings? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. All right. Well, then, until next time. All right. You ready, Chris? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. No theatrics. We're going to get right to it. Okay. Lights. Camera. See ya. See ya. I don't know why I said it so quickly. Bye.